This is Negotiate X Podcast, show number 69, part B. You're listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us on NegotiateX Podcast. We are continuing our conversation with Michael Phillips, founders of Phillips Consulting. If you haven't already checked out part A of this show, be sure to do that first. Let's jump in the conversation with Mike. Quick questions on salary, and I, I think we're going to shift gears a little bit. But So one is, um, do you always negotiate salary? Or if you can look at it and say, I'm being fairly compensated. What they're offering is fair. What advice would you give? I mean, so sometimes I hear people say, oh, you should always negotiate it. And sometimes I also wonder if this is an example of what it's going to be like to work together. And I can look at it and say, I'm fairly compensated for what they're asking me to do. This is fair on the market. Right. I'm, I'm happy just to get, let's get started. I think this is a little bit about an individual. I mean, I, I tend to, to be the, the latter in that situation, Aaron. I know when I think about over, over the course of my life, I'm on a few different occasions I've had to buy property, okay, or buy properties. And there's a fundamental difference between whether I'm buying a property that I'm going to live in yeah. or I'm buying a property that I'm going to let out. Now, if I'm going to live in it, you know, I go and I look at it. And, you know, we say, oh, we love this house. We're emotionally invested in it. I tend to negotiate less in that case because I just want the house. I don't want to go through all the right. stress. and Because at the end of the day, you know, another 5,000 here or there over the course of, you know, decades is not going to make any difference. Now, if I'm going to buy a house to let out and, and I'm not emotionally invested, it's, it's a pure business transaction. You drive mm -hmm. a hard bargain then. So I think if you were in a job you love, and you, you do your research and you feel you're getting a reasonable salary, it is individual. But for me, I would say, well, you know, you, you've ticked the box. You've done your research. If you feel in your life you need more money, then you've got some decisions to make. But that may mean going to another organization because it's going to be hard to make your case internally because <laughs> you won't believe yeah. yourself. The other, the other question that maybe relates a little bit to this too is how important is it to be aware of the person you're talking to? So if I'm looking to get hired, sometimes I've gone through a process, I've been hired by a manager, then when I get ready for the salary discussion, I get passed over to HR. I mean, how much can I control that in terms of, hey, I want to talk to the person I'm reporting to or something, right? But the process for the company is they're going to push me off to somebody who, at HR who has slightly different incentives for the rate at which they hire me or, or, or the hiring in general than, than this manager who was hiring me for skill and productivity and delivery. And this person's trying to manage a budget and set good precedent. How aware should I be of that dynamic? Yeah, I hate that. That's really bad, isn't it? You know, because again, if you put it in the commercial negotiating context, you want to you negotiate the decision maker, don't you? That's, you know, that's muddy in the water for you. It's making it more difficult. Personally, I, I would try and, and involve the guy who's hiring me as much as possible. Because then if you go over to someone you don't even know, you've had no interaction with, to be fair, I have to do that a lot in commercial negotiating. Yeah. So you have to think on your feet, you know, get a rapport going as quickly as you can. 
there's no silver bullet for that, but but that's, that's it, it, that happens. I know it's it, but it's quite annoying. But yeah, just get to know the person as, as much as you can. Try and get out of the manager as much as you can, because maybe you can get he or she on your side with the HR person. Let's switch then. Let's go ahead and switch over to the corporate negotiations that you're involved with. And you said that most of these are with manufacturing companies kind of between the $10 million to $100 million range. How do you extrapolate some of the key lessons from the no- naked negotiator uh, and apply them to the procurement situations uh, that these companies are facing? It's interesting because, as I say, in the, in the book, the, pro- the the lessons are negotiation theory that have been drawn from genuine commercial negotiations o- over the course of nearly 30 years. And, you know, we've got to think about some of, some of the key ones. One of the key ones that there's actually a whole chapter dedicated to and this tends to be a bit controversial in the negotiating world, is who should make the first offer, okay? Mm. Now, it, gets a, it does be a bit polarizing, this one. I am very much in the camp that you must make the first offer. And it's all about getting the conversation into the area that you want it in. I remember some years ago, the BBC made uh, a documentary called something like, uh, you know, uh, you don't think the way you think, something like that. And they had in this documentary um, an experiment which they filmed. Uh, and so they went up to people in, in London, in the street, with, with a big bottle of champagne. Uh, and then they asked them to put their hand in a bag and, and pull out a numbered ball. Uh, and the numbered ball either had the number 60 on it or the number 15 on it. And so they went and asked a number of people to pull out a ball. Just, they just say it's a reference number. You know, it's, there's no significance to this number, just a reference. Oh, number 50. And then they asked them, how much do you think this bottle of champagne is worth? And they all made their guesses. Now, what they demonstrated, and this has been shown in academic studies as well, is that the people who saw the higher number guessed a higher number for the champagne, and the people who guessed, saw the lower number guessed the lower number for the champagne. And it's extraordinary, really, isn't it? Just merely seeing a number influences your mind to go up or down. Uh, and so this is a kind of you know, cognitive bias that we have. We've seen a number, and it can influence us. So, I, so over the years, I've done a lot of negotiating with, with Chinese companies, and they, they love a target, and I don't mind giving them a target. I have to do my homework on, on the target because the key right. thing about the target is it's got to be you know, really aggressive, really ambitious is perhaps a better word, but also credible because if you go too far, you just look silly, don't you? So that's a key lesson I would say that comes from the commercial negotiation into your, into your salary negotiation. It's a bit counterintuitive because most people, when they go to a salary negotiation, will say, oh, I think this is in this, 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 will you give me, what will you give me? Now I'm saying, right. no, no, don't do that. Say, I've done my research and I think I'm worth this amount and get that number in your boss's mind right at the beginning. The power of leadership mm. or leading in negotiation, which comes back, I think, to this, uh, this idea that you were sharing earlier around being assertive, which assertive has some degree of confidence and competence kind of built in. I've done my homework. I'm not throwing out a crazy number. It's ambitious. Sure. Right. I mean, if I'm in a range, I'm going to be at the high end of the range. Here's why. How do you coach folks to get there? if their tendency is want to sit back and say, well, what will you give me? Well, you know, 
it's really interesting because you know over the years I've done negotiating classes you know in a classroom and you you come up with all sorts of scenarios and negotiating games and stuff like that but it's never the same as actually being in a real work negotiation so when I'm right. working with my clients I always say to them you know I I can go off and do this work for you and and I'll get on with it for you but you know what's best get your staff with me in the negotiation mm-hmm. See how it's done, and you you learn so much more by being there, seeing the interactions, and then we can have a discussion afterwards. You know what went well, what didn't go well. Now, always at the beginning, before the meeting, we'll have a discussion about you know who's who's doing what. These are the things I'm trying to achieve. This is how I'm going to try and achieve it. So, yeah, in terms of trying to get people to understand it, the best way is to get them involved in a real world negotiation. There's always an element of natural ability, isn't there? I mean, you, you've come across Malcolm Gladwell's you know, 10,000 hours concept. Yeah. You know, if you yep. do something for 10,000 hours, you can get professional proficiency. And, and I would say, yes, in broad terms, that is true. I'm sure I've done 10,000 hours of negotiating. But there's also an element of natural ability as well. I've, I've, got, I've, got, I've got a piano in my sitting room. I've practiced on it loads, but, you know, I'm still rubbish at playing. <laughs> don't have, don't have the, the natural ability to do it. Yeah, so you had mentioned cross-cultural ne- negotiations in Asia and was hoping to kind of dig into that a little bit more. Are there any other lessons learned as you do these cross-cultural negotiations that would be important for some of our leaders who are going to have that international negotiations throughout their career? Yeah, I think I would say on this that, Understanding the, the, the culture that you're in is important, uh, and you need to do that. You need to do your homework, but don't get too carried away with it, okay? Because at the end of the day, business is a kind of universal language. You know, we're trying to do the deal. You know, whenever I'm talking with a Chinese supplier, they, they want the order. If we've got the right supplier, I want to give them the order. So that's, that's the nuts and bolts of it. Don't get too carried away with, with the, the, the culture. I remember being in, in Japan, and the Japanese are quite interesting when it comes to negotiating. As you probably know, they're very much an honor-based culture. And so, you know, I remember going into the, the, the meeting, always in Japan, there's always a, a huge team of people. You know, there's a the room full of people. Right. But, and then the boss comes in, you know, and, and he sits at the end of the table, it barely says a word. Although, in fact, whether he does or not, he 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 makes say he doesn't even understand English. He may, I don't know, but anyway, he doesn't say <laughs> anything. And we have a long discussion, and I think it goes pretty well. But then, of course, in in Japan, you have to have this thing. Oh, we must go out to karaoke in the evening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we go to karaoke, and we're in this bar, and you you, know, you have to go out. And sing. But the one thing I realised that I mustn't do. Not that it was lively, that I mustn't sing better than the boss. <laughs> I get up and do my piece. Uh, it's not very, and then the boss gets up and does his piece, and oh, oh, it's great. <laughs> Going to the meeting the next morning, and the deal's done. <laughs> nice. For nice. some of us, for some of us, it wouldn't be hard to sound worse than the boss. You'd be good, Aaron. Thanks. Yep. So, Mike, so what are some common pitfalls, mistakes that you see companies that you work with make during the commercial negotiations and how can they kind of avoid them? Yeah. So as, as we sort of indicated, you know, one of the worst one is not doing your homework. You've got to do your homework, whether you're doing a salary uh, negotiation or whatever negotiation uh, it is. If we're talking about a commercial negotiation, you've got to have done 
the, your market research, you've got to understand the market yourself. What is good pricing? What is sloppy pricing? You know, the homework is really uh, important. And we touched on it a little bit, but being bold is important. Too many times, you know, I'm working with people and, and, and I'm saying, I say to them, right, I, th I think we should go for this price or, or this deal. And they go, oh, I don't know. If you've done your homework, you're not going to upset people because as long as you're not silly, everybody understands that there's a deal to be done. And, and your job, if you're on the buying side anyway, your job on the buying side is to get the lowest price and their job on the selling side is to get the highest price. Everybody understands that. So as long as people don't feel you're taking the nicky, taking liberties, then you know they're not, they're not going to be. So be bold. Too often people are not bold. And you must have a threat as well. And obviously, you know, in the commercial context, the threat is you walk away from the deal. There's the threats there. I mean, one thing you must never do, particularly in the salary negotiation context, you never say, is that your final offer? Never say that because there's no good answer to that, Pat. <laughs> you know, what would you like to say? You know, no, that's not my final offer. Well, you know, it's a bit of a, <laughs> isn't it? Or it is my final offer. And then all you've done is invite them to close down the negotiation. So right. never say, is that your final offer? Yeah, there are better questions. Yes. Than, like we, we like to say there's no bad question, but there are, there are some questions that are less effective than others. Yes. Uh, yes. Right. Hey, so I had a question too, in terms of challenges, how often do you see companies struggle with the idea that the deal is not the end, how we implement it, how we measure it, how we revisit the effectiveness of what we said we were going to do. That's important. So we really need to set ourselves up not just to get a deal done, okay, but actually for effective implementation and the ability to potentially repeat this a year from now or, or, or whatever. I mean, is that something that people lose sight of? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, and it's, it's particularly pertinent to the type of consulting that I do because my consulting is about getting the deal. It's about, you know, getting cost savings for my clients. And so too often people will assume that that is all it's about. But even in my context, I mean, I might typically be engaged with a client anything from as short as, you know, a few months to over a year. The, the length of engagement varies. But even if it's a short engagement, I would be short-sighted in the extreme if I just mm. totally focused on just getting the lowest price and forgetting everything else that is important. I'm, I'm not going to get any repeat business if I do that. You've got to make sure that you've got the deal set up so it's going to be lasting, that it's going to deliver mutual benefits. That's important. You can't, although, you know, sometimes uh, in discussions when I'm coaching people, they say, well, it has to be fair, not necessarily fair, but there has to be something in it for the other party. It's not necessarily yeah. a 50, 50 split. No, you know, it might be a 60, 40, even a 70, 30, but the other party's got to get something out of this. I always feel that if I end a negotiation and that the person across the table shakes my hand and says, thank you for all your help, then I've done a good job. You know, that, that's what I want to get them to. Giving me everything I wanted, but they feel I've almost been on their side. I've been helpful. So it's a slight tangent to what you asked, Aaron, but I, I do yeah. completely agree with you. The, 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 if you like, the non-price things, the, the uh, sustainability of the deal, I mean, from a commercial point of view, not necessarily from a sort of environmental point of view, but that may be important as well. But the sustainability yeah. of the deal is absolutely yeah. critical. And, and you've got to get those elements in the discussion, actually, because mm. they may affect the price. And as I say, it's really short-sighted to just try and drive, drive, drive on the price, and then the deal unravels in six months. I love what it is that 
we get fixated on price and we equate price to cost and we forget that total cost is bigger. Yeah. And we, and we need to, as you said, we need that conversation probably needs to happen. Maybe not at the beginning of the negotiation, right? But I, I don't, you know, maybe the, but the, during some point of the negotiation process, we need to talk about total cost and implementation. Yeah, I mean, I always like to say, though, that there are, in terms of, you know, things that are about quality and service and these sort of things, I, I do tend to say to suppliers I'm talking with, you know, these are non-negotiables. I, I actually want the best quality. I want the best service. Okay. So, right. you, 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 you know, assume that they're there. We're going to talk about the detail naturally. Because sometimes if I'm driving a hard bargain on price, they'll say, oh, well, you know, we, we, we could, you know, reduce the quality of this. Like, oh, that's not the game we're playing. You know, this is the specification. This is what we want. We're not going to negotiate on that. But you do need to be at a competitive market price for this quality of product that we're buying. You know, so kind of going on both the quality and service piece, and just the negotiations as, as we sit here in 2023, post-COVID world, some of the supply chain challenges that are occurring for so many companies. Curious about trends that you're seeing that whether they're surprising or new or interesting or whatever. I'll give you an example, and, and maybe you can draw on some too that, that you're seeing. Uh, we had a, a colleague of ours who works for a global tech company recently just say, you know, right now, what is most important to me is I got to know from my suppliers that something is going to get delivered on time to spec and I'm willing to pay more to make sure that happens. So right, a little bit of a trend difference just because of the supply chain challenges. What else would you say that you're seeing in terms of just kind of general trends, things that are, you're working through as you work with different clients? Well, I think on, on, on this, Aaron, there's, there's a timing issue here. And, and it's about, I guess, really, I mean, I suppose different industries will be at different points in their curve, to be fair. Yep. But, you know, I get quite, I get involved quite a lot in the electronic components industry. And if we go back to, say, uh, 2020, 2021 in particular, and into 22, that's where we were. It's almost, doesn't matter what the price is. We've just got, We've got to have the components. And I saw, I was working with clients and we might previously have been paying $2.50 for, 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 for a microchip and we're now having to pay $100 for the microchip. It's just crazy. Wow. And the distribution companies, the, the Arrows, the Abnets of this world, you know, they were insisting on firm schedules, non-cancellable, non-rescheduled. Obviously, you know, what people are understanding is that the supply chain has got completely disrupted. And then what's going to happen is there's going to be, a, and everybody's going to grab as much stock as they can. And so all <laughs> the stock won't be with the distribution. They'll be with the OEMs in their warehouses. Yeah. And at that point, the distribution company's output is going to go through the floor because everybody's stocked up. And so right. they insisted fixed firm schedules, no negotiation. You have to take these. The take these now that was 2021 go forward now into 23 and and we're already now in the phase where it's beginning to ease quite a lot prices are tumbling uh inventories are going up again in, in the supply yeah. chains but oems of course are still sitting on lots of stock so they yeah. don't need it and so now i'm very much at the phase with my clients saying you need to really be driving a hard bargain I mean, a good example was um, I've got a client in the medical industry. They had a supplier in India 
Last year, the, the supplier put through quite a significant increase on the basis of raw materials had gone up. Foreign exchange had moved against us. Shipping costs, I mean, shipping costs went crazy. Um, I, I seem to remember that uh, you might have been paying $1,500 for a shipping container. You know, you were up to $20,000 for a shipping container. Oh. So they put through an increase before I was involved with the client. And, you know, to be honest, it was a perfectly reasonable increase at that time. Now, I've become involved later on. And as we've said, I'm doing my homework. I'm doing my preparation. All three of those factors, raw material, foreign exchange, shipping costs, had all turned yep. around. And so that, that gave me very strong negotiating leverage with the supplier because I was actually able to use their logic against them. And mm -hmm. straight away, straight away, they removed the increase. Uh, you know, and I can't remember the exact figures. You know, that was a couple of hundred thousand dollars in one discussion. So the, the timing is, is critical. Uh, it will vary from industry to industry. But I, I'm picking up definitely. We're, we're very much on the, on the phase now where supply chains are, are, are not snarled up and uh, yeah. are, are easing now and prices are tumbling. It requires tremendous flexibility when the situation is fluid. It's changing. You got to be educated. Be well. I, I would assume that you also have to be able to manage the internal versus external conversations. So much of what we've talked about so far has been kind of external focused. I assume that when you talk about some of your work with the NHS and working with surgeons, some of this is all about the internal negotiation within an organization to be aware of what is changing in terms of trends, what is changing certainly in the medical field in terms of procedures and what's needed. How do you help people have better or more constructive internal dialogues to influence stakeholders within their organization so that they can then go have, be able to negotiate effectively externally? Yeah, I'm going to say in, in, my, in my long career, the internal negotiations I have within my clients are more challenging than the Damn. external uh, uh, discussions. I was going to say, I, we're not surprised to hear that. I think some people are always surprised to yeah. hear that. But yeah, sorry, yeah. keep going. Uh, you know, I think the key thing is showing professional respect to the people that you're dealing with. So as I say, with the surgeons, I was very, very careful not to even imply that I would tell them which manufacturer of, of implant to use. They're the experts. And they know that. Yeah. When I'm in the manufacturing area, particularly in the, in the problem we were just talking about where there was a severe supply shortage of components, and we were constantly having to have discussions with electronics engineers saying, we can't get this part. We need another part. You know, but it's really important not to say, to respect their knowledge, their their professional integrity and say, can we have this part? You know, not start telling them what to do. Because I think that's one thing that's going to, that winds up people straight away um, is, is being told how to do their job. Now, for me, it's more the, the, the challenging thing is that when I'm invited into a client, I've got to work with supply chain people. And a human reaction is, Who's this bloody smart Alec coming in trying to tell me, tell me how to do my job? Um, <laughs> right, and, you know, and that, that's that, that's tricky. It's a human reaction, isn't it? But you know, I guess the best way, the way I try and deal with that and say, look, you know, we're all procurement people. All we're trying to do is to demonstrate to the business how important a procurement is and what an impact it can make. And I often use the analogy of, you know. A great supply chain person has to be a bit like a decathlete. They've got all sorts of things they have to deal with. You know, they've got their day-to-day -day quality issues, you know, getting the parts in, 
Um, they may have staff issues they've got to deal with, you know, procedural issues. When I come in, I, I, I'm just like the sprinter. I can get to focus on what I'm doing. I don't have all those other responsibilities that they do. And so, right. you know, bring me into your, or, or the other analogy to use a soccer analogy, you know, I, I'm, I'm the centre forward that you buy, you, you buy in for a while to knock a few goals in, you know, and then, <laughs> then I go away afterwards. But, you know, you're the manager of the team still. So it's, again, trying to respect their, you know, their professional position. Right. So I have a couple vignettes that I'd love to, to ask you. And so first one's kind of one that I'm seeing with my peers. So let's say Ellen from the NECA negotiator is walking into, let's say the negotiation didn't go well, she moved companies and now entering to a new company into a mid-level management position and sees that the processes are not in place. And I know something I know you've experienced, I know Aaron and I have experienced is that you can see a distinct difference when an organization has negotiation process in place, they're speaking the same language, there's just a ton of benefit that happens there because they're able to all be on the same page moving in the same direction. So what advice would you give to that manager who sees that there's no process in place? Like where do they start? How do they break it down? How do they bring this team together around how to be effective negotiators? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I'm kind of thinking about a client that I'm working with at the moment that's in a similar position. Uh, what I've done with my sponsor in the company, often you get one person who tends to bring you in is say, let, let's just try and get a few quick wins to demonstrate how effective this process can be. What I'm experienced though is you've got a little bit of um, people holding their cards close to their chest. Oh, you know, I, I'm dealing with this, I'm dealing with this, you know, you get that. Uh, and, and that's exactly where, you know, because there's no process there. It's being done in individual ways. So what, I, what I'm doing is to go through a process demonstrate, try and pick an area where there's no one clambering over this. And that's my, my mind, pick an area, demonstrate the process. And then you've got some results, haven't you? Uh, and then the hope is then you say, well, look, you see how I did this here. It produced this result and, and, and then try and build on it from there and expand it. So I, I, I would suggest that. I think. I think it's a great, great idea of getting buy-in. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of going from there. All right. So the next vignette is mine. Uh, so with my website design digital marketing agency, I have kind of a difficult conversation with budget, with our clients, whenever we have a new client, like during the RFP process, many of my clients or prospects hesitate to provide me with the budget because they think that I'm going to take advantage of them. And, you know, the little information that they may have about value, cost, et cetera, they don't necessarily know what the cost of a website is. So but I know that there's a big difference between a $75,000 website and a $10,000 website. And so, you know, on the high end, I may have a professional film crew and on the low end, I may just have stock images that you just find off the internet. So how can I do a better job at approaching this conversation in a manner where they feel comfortable giving me their budget so I can set realistic expectations or figure out how to put more into the project? Yeah, I would say with this, I mean, I always say to people when I'm coaching them about negotiating, just be open. Offer as much information that, as you can. Only hold back what you really have to. Sometimes there's commercial stuff that you've got to hold back. So just be completely open about, you know, just what you were saying. Uh, reassure them, explain. I do remember, uh, you know, with, with a colleague and we would, we would go along to a potential client 
Um, and you kind of just trying to figure out what to say to try and persuade the client that this was a good idea. And he was kind of always worried that you would kind of give too much away, and not in terms of value, but into you know the whole process. But I've learned over the years, just be as open as possible. Just be completely open. This is how it works. This is what we'll deliver. And this is the cost. And the way that my business is set up is that we generally have a, what we call an incentive fee. So if, if I make a big saving, then I get a bigger fee. So that, that's how we set it up. And uh, so I'm very open with people. You know, I say, you know, if, if, I, if I save you $500,000, you're going to give me a big chunk of money. But what's the problem? You know, you, you're, you're going to get the much bigger slice. I get paid well. You make a big saving. Everyone wins. I think somehow people respond to, to, to just an open, uh, a, a open manner. So, you know, I do really take your point, Nolan, that people are always worried about it. But I would say be open, explain as much as you can, be relaxed about it as well, because I think that, yeah. that relaxation will be infectious to the other party. Yeah, you say infectious, reciprocal piece, right? The idea, I mean, information is the currency yeah. of negotiation. We have this bias to hold our cards close, and there's a real cost to doing that. And, and again, I, I love your advice because you're not saying some Pollyannish, oh, just play your cards open. You're saying, hey, really think critically about what information we share that's relevant to be able to share and, and that that's going to probably draw more information from them. But it's a, it's a little bit of a shift in mindset about being open. Yeah, and I mean, and to give you an example on that is, you know, when, when, when you've done your homework, so the, how do you find out what, what the proper value of anything is? You have to go out to the market, you get pricing from the market, and, and you, you may have got it from supplier A, B, and C. And so now you go and talk with supplier D, the one you're, you're, you're talking to, uh, and you say you, your, your price is not in line with the market. And they'll say, well, which suppliers have you spoken to? Now, sometimes I'll, go, I'll be open, say well, it's uh, you know, ABC. But sometimes knowing a bit about the market, I don't want to be open because they'll start picking holes in it. They'll say, oh, them, you know, there's this. this, this. And, and that's for me to judge. Uh, you know, when right. I'm doing my benchmarking process, I, I'm being careful to pick suppliers who are real, ones that I really would be prepared to go to. And so, right. so you know, it depends on the circumstance, but sometimes I'll be completely open. Oh, yeah, it was, you know, supplier X. Or other times, because I don't want to go down a rabbit hole and then start saying, oh, they, you know, then I've made that judgment. They're acceptable. So, yeah, you work out what you can share. But my, I always say the default position is share it unless there's a good reason not to share it. That's great advice. Thanks. So as we get ready to wrap up, I, I, I feel like we've still, this has been a very quick hour. I feel like we still just kind of hit the surface and yet you've provided great examples, taking us deep. What haven't we asked you today that you'd like to ensure that you kind of leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think this it's is interesting because we've talked a lot about salary and about getting value and getting what you deserve. Um, and I think, you know, that, that is important. But ultimately, in terms of work, I don't think you should chase the money. Don't make that your ultimate. You know, I think what really will give you fulfillment in a career is going into work every day and being the best you can, striving for excellence every day. So getting paid what you deserve is good, but don't make it your ultimate. Well, Mike, thanks. Uh, and I just want to, as I just again say, thanks for joining us from across the pond. Thanks for your great insights. So many great takeaways here that I think that we can apply both 
individually as we negotiate, as you just said, a career that we want with ourselves for ourselves and also for the teams and organizations that we're part of. How do we help them? So thank you for covering so much ground with us. Thank you. Great talking to you guys. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. So that is it for us on today's podcast. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to Negotiate X Radio, helping you elevate your influence through purposeful negotiations. If you're here looking to learn about how to become a better negotiator in both business and life, then you're in the right place. Be sure to join the others who have benefited from NegotiateX.com, your home for negotiations training and consulting online. 